0: Today, sports, the pandemic, and local communities. We'll be talking to SI senior writer Greg Bishop, who's a resident of Kirkland, Washington, the original epicenter in the US, as he describes what life has been for him, his family, and his community ever since the pandemic arrived early in March. For the majority of our production, we have dealt with COVID-19's impact on sports from a specific perspective. From the postponement of the Olympics to NBA player salaries, the narrative has mainly dealt with the professional aspect. But there is another facet, and that's about our own communities and how the pandemic has jilted our own lives here in the US. So we go back to where it all started in America, in Washington state, specifically Kirkland, the original epicenter in the US and how one of our writers beautifully and tragically depicted what he saw from his own backyard. Joining us now is Sports Illustrated senior writer Greg Bishop. Greg, thanks so much for joining us.
1: I appreciate you having me. Thank you.
0: Greg, let's let's talk about your hometown. You wrote a beautiful Detailed piece about your reaction and how the community was impacted. Talk to us about what you've seen and what the last few weeks has been for you and your town.
1: Yeah, it's a great question because it all feels a little surreal. It's, you know, you know that this virus is sweeping across the world, you know that it's impacted people who live uh, in the United States, but also in Italy and China, obviously. And to have the epicenter of the United States at first be in Kirkland, Washington, of all places, it felt like something out of a movie. If I'm being honest about it, uh, you know what Kirkland is known for is being a suburb near Seattle. It is a relatively small town. There is a small downtown area with a lot of restaurants, and we are home to one of the original Costco's. So when people see Kirkland brand there, that's because one of those is here, about a mile from my house, and. You know, the way I, I kind of became aware of all this was I went running one morning before I took my son down to Portland to visit friends, and I ran by a normal route, and when I went to my buddy's house later in the day, all of a sudden news broke, and I saw Life Care Center of Kirkland. You know, that's the nursing ro- home where everyone has been dying, and not only was it close to my house, like within a mile roughly, but... Uh, I had jogged by there that very morning. And so I was like, holy cow, like this is, thing is real. It's happening all around. And we pretty much, my family, my wife, my son, and I immediately, you know, went into like, how can we deal with this? What kind of precautions do we have to take? What kind of changes to our daily habits do we have to take? And I think what you're seeing now across the country for the last week or two, I feel like we've been in that world for the better part of a month, a month and a half. You know, I, I can't remember the last time. I sat down at a restaurant and had a meal with like another human being. It's probably been six weeks. You know, I would take my kid out for different things. At first, I would take him to the parks with playgrounds, then they closed those. You know, at first, I would take him to big open spaces. Those are closed now. Uh, We're basically down to like, I can take him on these trails by the house because nobody's on them and we can stand far enough apart and you kind of run him around and get some energy out. And so. At this point now, it feels like Kirkland is fairly similar to the rest of the United States, if not most of the world that's dealing with this coronavirus. But, you know, it's been a lot longer here, and I think we're starting to feel what you all will feel pretty soon. I I feel bored. (laughs) I feel restless. I am the kind of sports writer who spends his life going places and talking to people and reporting I love seeing in stories. Uh, this has basically eliminated my ability to do my job in a normal way. And all those things are not really complaints, they're more of me setting the stage for what it's like here because I realized that people are sick, that people are dying, and that people have it worse. And that for me was really driven home when my colleague at my former newspaper, The New York Times, Alan Finder, passed away from coronavirus. Uh, and he lives in New Jersey, he was 71, I believe, years old. and so you know, this thing is real. These precautions are necessary. And living here is super weird and very strange. And all of that kind of exists on the same plane for me.
0: Now, being a resident, aside from that, you obviously, of course, mentioned and we all know your work as a sports writer. And even though you mentioned it eliminated the majority of your work from a physical geographical standpoint, you at the very least have reached out to teams uh, locally, both professional, amateur, high school, and how they're dealing with the pandemic. How has it been for them just from a local standpoint uh, within your city and state?
1: Right, and that, that to me has been an interesting part of this deal because for them it's changed over time. You know, When I first wrote about just living in Kirkland and being this close to the virus, I reached out to the Mariners, the Seahawks, the Sounders, the University of Washington, and the closest high school to my house, which is Juanita High School, where I take my kid to swim class uh, on the weekends. And you know, at that point in time, it was still pretty early, so the Mariners were hoping to play. Uh, The Sounders were playing games. They had not been interrupted. Uh, The University of Washington still planned to hold its spring seasons for baseball, softball, and track and field and sports like those. And it seemed like at that point, uh, the world would pretty much go on normal as long as people were dealing with the virus in a way where they were looking at, you know, how they could um, keep the common greater good in mind. Uh, That has obviously changed dramatically. You know, I was getting ready to cover the NCAA tournament when it became clear that it was no longer going to take place. I was interested in a few NBA stories when it became clear that that season would be suspended. The teams here have had to deal with it. Uh, The Sounders are not playing. The Mariners are not playing. I mean, that's because really no sports are going on. Uh, The local high school is not doing spring sports. They're not having class in session. And so, You know, I think what you're seeing with these teams are the same thing you're seeing with households and with businesses and with, you know, media entities like the one we work for. I mean, everybody is grappling with it. How do you maintain uh, the ability to produce content? How do you, in the case of the Mariners, how do you keep fans interested in a team that has the longest playoff drought in professional sports? Uh, How do you keep fans ready so that when you can open your stadium again, that they will come back, that there won't be fears that this is going to linger. I mean, even if they cleared us to go back to a stadium right now, how many people would do that? You know, how many people would feel safe? How many people would feel like they wouldn't have to uh, take precautions and stay home? Um, To me, the home viewing experience is already better. You know, the great TVs close to your refrigerator, bathroom breaks a lot easier. You know, I, I think that they're in a real bind here, you know, and again, it's not more important than human life by any stretch of the imagination. But you know these teams are going to have to coax people back into stadiums when it won't feel very safe or very normal. And you know, I just think it's going to be interesting to watch the landscape as it moves forward. I mean, is is the NBA going to play at all? But you know, doesn't look that way. Will baseball be the first sport back at one point in the season? Will it be after the trade deadline, after the All Star break? I, I just think teams are in a real bind here, and uh, it's a necessary bind, and it's uh, something we should all be cognizant of. And so. To me, it's just fascinating, and so that's why I've been writing a lot about the coronavirus and its impact on sports because, you know, I think sports in some ways is a microcosm of society, and I think we sometimes look to sports in times like this to become a welcome distraction, and what we have now instead is uh, sports would be one of the worst things you could do uh, in this time, and that to me is super unprecedented and worthy of examination.
0: Yeah, I think going to that specific point about how you're using your writing as a way to investigate and report and tell stories on how the sporting community is dealing with this. One of them was another city, Spokane, suffered as, as much as anybody because it was meant to be the host of the first and second round of the NCAA March Madness tournament. Aside from the sporting aspect, this is also an economic problem for a venue that relies on this kind of revenue. How has it been for that you know, arena? the organizers and the businesses around it, since you wrote it?
1: Yeah, to me, that story just broke my heart. You know, I really wanted to look at how the virus was impacting something in real time. And what I found was even way deeper than I ever expected it to be. You know, Spokane is a, you know, it's not a small city. It's over 200,000 people, but it's not the, you know, cousin of Seattle. It's the east side of the state. It's very close to Idaho. You know, this is a place where events have a major impact on the revenue of the city. Uh, they have a theater downtown, a convention center, and an arena. The arena was uh, going to host the NCAA tournament for the men's side and the women's side. Uh, between the three venues t- in total, there were 90-something events scheduled for March, April, and May. Every single one of those events has been canceled. Uh, they estimate they're going to lose uh, roughly $6 million in sales tax at least. Depending on how long this goes, it could be more. Uh, they're going to lose $3.4 million in sales tax just in March alone because they would have had a middle school basketball tournament, the, the, both the NCAA tournaments, and a volleyball qualifying tournament. Uh, I met with this guy that owns David Pizza out there. It's right across the street from the arena, which was totally empty and desolate on a day when it should have been bustling. There should have been bands playing and crowds chanting and, you know, uh, typical NCAA tournament fair. At David's Pizza, eighty percent of the employees had to be let go. For now, uh, they're down eighty percent in revenue. Um, I ordered dinner from there when I was out in Spokane because I felt so bad for the guy. But you know, you're looking at—he had gone out during the day to deliver pizza to first responders because he didn't want to waste the ingredients. He didn't want them to spoil. Uh, it just felt overall like there was, uh, like it was going to be hard for them to come out of the damage that the cancellation of these events ultimately inflicted. And again, that's not to say that. Anyone saying they should host the events, but like there is a both these things are true at the same time. You know, it's true that the coronavirus requires extreme me- measures to try to control, that we need to stop the spread, that you know, these that staying in, in your home and practicing social distancing and doing all these things is not only important but crucial and necessary. At the same time, for a city like Spokane that relies on out of towners that is sort of a regional hub for entertainment that needs these events in a way that a city like say Atlanta that would have the final four doesn't need it as much, you know, it's just devastating. Like that that's also true too. They are gonna be really hurt from this. They're gonna need to reschedule all these things. They're gonna need people to come back out. They're gonna need people to buy tickets. None of these contract people can work. Not the ticket takers, not the parking lot attendants, not anybody that, you know, that relies on events like these for income. And, you know, I think both things can be true. And you know, until we get a handle on it, this is just going to be life for a little while.
0: Greg, finally, it's been all of March, as you mentioned, even more since you've been reporting or at least experiencing this pandemic. Um, You know, I would love to know just to end it, how you as a sports writer um, has been able to adjust, aside from just talking about sporting stories, but also the industry in itself, how you have been Dealing with it and and relating to it with other people and at the same time as a family, man, are you, you know, taking it all in? Are you optimistic on what's ahead just from your reporting? What are you seeing from both those angles?
1: Yeah, you know, I guess I'd start with the family side. Um, I think my wife has referred to herself as the world's unluckiest woman, uh, because (laughs) not only am I home for for three weeks when I would have been gone covering the tournament, uh, I will be home for three weeks in June when I would have been covering the Olympics. But my son's home too, for the most part. So she's now stuck with both of us indefinitely and all day long. And so um, that's been interesting. I've been trying to help around the house, I've been trying to take my kid outside. You know, you should see our Costco, it's insane. There are lines outside for people to get in. Uh, you know, it's impossible to find hand sanitizer. Uh, toilet paper has been an issue um, you know we're trying to do everything that that people say to do whether that's condensing orders for Amazon so they're on as many from our house or social distancing or hand washing. Uh, I got my little guy super into the hand washing now he's like all over it every daddy wash hands wash hands like he realizes that we're doing it a lot now at the very minimum now I have a piece on how sports writers and sports journalists have been handling. Uh, this impact, and to me that's a, a much more uncertain kind of world. Um, you know, I spoke to Jay Harris, the sports Center anchor, about what it's like to do a uh, sports center without a lot of highlights. you know they've been focusing on the news. His background is in that, so he doesn't seem that thrown by it. I spoke to a guy like Jerry Tipton, covered Kentucky basketball for uh, thirty nine years, so this is the first time in almost four decades that he's had a march that was kind of open. Uh, He's trying to figure out if he should write about something else since he's been doing college hoops for so long. I spoke to this kid at the University of Washington, Alec Dietz, uh, who has uh, just graduated and just finished his tenure at the student paper. Uh, He can't find a job, which understandably is very difficult. He's moved back in with his parents. Uh, He's been applying to Costco and Safeway. And I think none of these things are meant to seem like sports writers' complaints should be um, something people want to hear or even valid. They're not really even complaining I think it's just more meant to show, like, this is how our world is changing. It's a world that generally can be a microcosm of society, and it's like any other industry. You know, our bosses are dealing with, how do you shoot photos for these stories that I write? You know, no one's going to let somebody in their home to take photographs. There are no events to shoot. You know, that part of the world has essentially ground to a halt. You know, I have two documentaries that I'm working on for Sports Illustrated, We can't film on either of those because there's no way to get a crew anywhere and there's no way to um, get people to agree to let you in their living room. Like that to me would feel um, disingenuous or dangerous, even if they were open to it. This is obviously no different than other industries, but it has a deep and wide impact. And what I'm trying to do right now is what I think writers often do in their lives, and that's to make sense of the world around us. You know, I think writing about this stuff helps me feel like. At least I'm a little bit more on top of it. At least I'm looking into what what might be going on. And people are adapting. People are confused. People are scared. And what everybody wants to know is how long is this going to last? It's scary. And uh, not any more for us than for anybody else, but we're humans too. And so I think everybody's dealing with it on some level in a similar way.
0: Greg Bishop using it also as a sort of therapy, and we thank you for that, for all of uh... Writers and and everybody reading your content, Greg Bishop, senior writer, Sports Illustrated. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: When we talk about the COVID-19 pandemic and how it affects the sports industry, the natural reaction is almost always to focus on the actual state of the game or the athlete from a professional standpoint. But the fact is that sports, at its core, is about community whether it's a team from your local elementary school or a running group that meets every weekend, the idea of sports ultimately deals with connecting. And as Greg states through his experience as a sports writer, the pandemic causes a ripple effect on everyone inside that community. So now more than ever, as we look to overcome these unprecedented times, we must never stop connecting or supporting each other as sports in the end paints the picture of togetherness and that's something that can never break thanks to greg bishop for joining me today we'll continue bringing you these stories throughout the coronavirus crisis if you like what we're doing please recommend us to a friend or family member and leave a rating and review on apple podcasts it really helps others find a show You can listen to Coronavirus and Sports for free wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to subscribe or follow us for the latest episodes. Stay safe and we'll see you next time.